This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by the official Star Trek Starships collection. Get the Enterprise D for only $4.95 when you sign up today at st-starships.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 200, Unification 1 and Unification 2. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. Ken. That's, hey, that, that's your part. Ah, fine, fine. And I'm Ken Ray. What was that about? I was going for drama. You see, my thought was that you could talk about me for like the first half of this show, and then I would dramatically reveal myself exactly halfway through while, of course, retaining our family-friendly reputation. I mean, it's not going to be so revealing. but Yeah, just like in Unification, that's the one where Spock goes to Romulus uh, for reasons to be revealed. By the way, uh, we might have made a mistake doing Redemption as one podcast rather than Redemption 1 and Redemption 2. But this one, this one, it just seems so obvious that it needed to be one show. <laughs> well, to half of us, it did. Huh? To which? I'm just saying. I'm just saying. No, I know. I, the, the luck of the draw. Luck yeah, of the draw. The, yeah. You have had to write these uh, massive uh, double header shows. Uh, I'm sorry. That's I'm all right. Sorry. Yeah, for people counting ahead, by the way, the next one is supposed to be mine as well. We've already made a deal. <laughs> it's not yeah. going to happen. Just not going to happen. Because, you know, I'm, I'm like I'm like James Brown over here. I can't do no more. No, I can't. That's it. <laughs> right. You are the hardest working man in podcasting. <laughs> I respect that. <laughs> I'm not sure that's true, yeah. but okay. So, yeah. Um, re- uh, what, which one is this? Not redemption. This is unification. It is not redemption. You're exactly right. This yeah. is unification one and unification two. Yeah. This is the time that uh, that Spock returns. Well, no, wait, wait. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other time. No, wait. The other. Well, anyway, Spock's back. Yeah. <laughs> so, yep. so yep. line up. Hey, I have a question, and this is like an actual honest question, because we're going to talk about our good friends at uh, Eagle Moss, the people who bring us the tiny little starships that we love so much. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So that black ship that they blow oh, spoiler alert, that they blow up in this episode. <laughs> right. Is that one of the ships that you can get? Do you know? Oh, man, you know. I don't know off the top of my head because, right. as I said last week, I don't like to necessarily spoil it yeah. for what's coming down the, the pike. So I haven't really looked to see if that ship – do you want one? Uh, it's, Is it's, that it? It's a pretty cool ship. Yeah. Would I mean, you blow it up? No. I, well, no. Not not, not really. <laughs> <laughs> I might use that J.J. Abrams app, though, where I like, you know, make it look like it blew up or whatever. But anyway, yes, uh, look, okay, I, I, yeah. I feel bad now because if I brought up that ship and they don't have one, then I've really called out one of the only ships they don't have. Because, I mean, the number of ships that they have is, is absolutely insane. And, uh, of course, the level of detail and stuff, we've talked about that. I think probably what we should mention, though, is like, so people have said, OK, so so you, you talk about how good they look. How do I get to see how good they look? 
That's kind of the thing. Yeah. Um, we have a, a photo gallery at missionlogpodcast.com where our listeners have sent in photos of their models and then their whole collections, which are really impressive, by the way. And the more I get, I'm just going to keep adding to that gallery. I want it to keep going as long as it can. Um, but the pictures don't necessarily do it justice until you've actually held one and you've seen the detail for yourself and you felt kind of the weight of it for yourself. There's only one way to do that, mm -hmm. and that's by getting one for yourself, and you can do it for four ninety five. Yeah, that's less than a fin, Ken. <laughs> less than a fin. It is less than a fin. I mean, and that's. I mean, and that really is a great way to think about it because I think you and I have been talking about, hey, and your first one is only this amount. Well, hey, you can also say your demo model is only this amount, or you can say, hey, you know, getting your hands on it and seeing what you're actually going to be getting is only this amount. Now, you know, you may decide, it's difficult to imagine that you would if you're thinking about it, but you may decide that, okay, I'm not going to go past the one. For $4.95, I mean, the magazine and just the one ship, I mean, it, it, and that's a, that's a great deal for $4.95. That includes the shipping, by the way, as well. And then if you're as impressed by that as we think you're going to be, well, then chances are you're just going to let it roll, and, and pretty soon you'll be able to tell me whether that, you know, little black ship is uh, is among the booty. <laughs> I would buy a magazine dedicated to the Enterprise 1701D for 4.95 just by itself. Just a magazine, so, yeah, which you know, of course you do get. Just a magazine. Yeah, and now you get a magazine and a model and a digital copy. That is that is all of that is very cool. Now, there is something going on specifically this weekend, and we never talk about specifically this weekend on this show, but the first weekend of September, uh, the good people at Eagle Moss are going to be meeting with, or joining, or landing with the good people at um, Mission New York. Yes, Star Trek Mission New York, the 50th anniversary convention. If you happen to be lucky enough to be going to that show at the Javits Center in New York City, September 2nd through the 4th, it's 2016, for those of you who are listening this year. Um, go to the Eagle Moss booth. They will have a vendor's booth so you can see these models up close and in person. But better than that, they have a panel called To Boldly Collect Behind the Scenes with the official Star Trek Starships collection. That'll be on September 4th. That'll be that Sunday at 2.45 p.m. And not only will you have the project manager there, a conversation with uh, Matt Singer. He is the editor-in-chief of ScreenCrush.com, but he's hosting Eagle Moss's Star Trek expert, Ben Robinson. They'll talk about how they build these models from the blueprints on up, sourcing production photos, production notes, everything to get these together to bring you the finest Starship collection that you can buy. So if you're in New York, then you would be remiss if you didn't go to the Eagle Moss booth, check out those models for yourself, and go to their panel on Sunday afternoon to find out how they're made. I think it'll blow your mind. Now, of course, if you want to go ahead and get started, or at the very least, try that one demo model that we were talking about, uh, there is a website to check out, st-starships.com slash missionlog. Uh, that'll get you the Enterprise 1701D, or actually you'll go there and you'll order and you'll get the Enterprise 1701D, you'll get the magazine, you'll get the digital download, you'll get the stand, you get all that for $4.95, which is just, I mean, which is just a, that's just a crazy way to be able to just demo the thing. And, uh, and you know, it's a demo that you can actually keep. So that website again, st-starships.com slash mission log. And we do, of course, thank... Uh, Thank the good people there for, for sponsoring this week's show. Ken, I mentioned before that we have that online gallery going and people can submit their photos to us. But 
They may also want to comment on the contents of our show. How might they do that? Lots of ways, John. Lots of ways. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we'd love to hear from you. Our phone number is 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. You know what else we might use? Trivia. Now, trivia, I know, is probably going to be light this week, because there's not a lot that happens here, and I, I just can't imagine there's much trivia for, for these shows. <laughs> there, there, there are one or two trivia. Okay, one or two trivia? One or two trivia I can handle. Uh, hit me okay. with that one or two trivia, won't you please? <laughs> All right. So, uh, the overall story arc for the two parts that we're discussing today accredited to Rick Berman and Michael Pillar. The first part teleplay was written by Jerry Taylor, and the second part teleplay was by Michael Pillar. Part one was directed by Les Landau, part two directed by Cliff Bull, although it could have been Adam Nimoy. You recognize that last name. That would be Leonard Nimoy's son, Adam, who is an accomplished director in his own right. Leonard had lobbied to have Adam film it, but uh, the timing simply did not work out. So we have veteran directors Les Landau and Cliff Bowl. Now, it is also interesting to note that they filmed these in reverse order. There was some overlap. There were some scenes that were done in overlap. But for the most part, they shot part two early so they could get all of Nimoy's scenes done and then move on to the rest of the episodes. Um, you have probably noticed that there is a tribute to Gene Roddenberry on the title of these episodes. Um, so as we mentioned before, Gene Roddenberry had passed away uh, during production in late 1991. That was in October, 1991. And this was the first time that the, uh, the sort of the logistics had worked out to get his name and tribute on the screen. So that's what they did. Uh, the episodes aired premiering November 2nd and November 9th, 1991. We have to mention here that Star Trek six came out on December 6, 1991. The timing was very specific. Leonard Nimoy saw this as a promotional opportunity and therefore dropped his pay demands. There had been requests to maybe get Nimoy on Next Generation before. That would have cost the production about a million bucks. And that's a lot of money for oh a TV show. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. But in this case, Leonard Nimoy, who is a producer on Star Trek VI, certainly was not unaware of the promotional value of having a couple of hours of TV that would tie into an anticipated movie coming out about a month later. Now, it was a big deal that Leonard Nimoy was here. He and Rick Berman were friends, and everyone had a sense that this was important, and it lent even more weight to what was happening on The Next Generation. Michael Piller described that there was still a sense in the early years of Next Gen that there was an effort to have that show stand on its own, almost with no reference to the original series, and now they had clearly gone past that hurdle. We talked about that before a few times, Ken, about how these little references to the original series showed up. And then with the episode, Sarek, you're really putting a stamp on it saying this is directly related to the original series and can't get much more related than by having Spock in there. Everybody on set was aware that this was an important event in Star Trek history. Now, we have reference here to Kittimer, 
which was not yet seen by anyone since Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, had not come out yet. But we are laying the groundwork for what occurs in that story. And it's also worth mentioning that we are wrapping up the 25th anniversary year here for Star Trek. So all of this is happening with sort of a, a coordination of these multiple productions to celebrate 25 years of Trek. We have a nice mention of Tapau, the ship, not named after the band, but named after the Star Trek character whose name was used by the band Tapau. We also have the USS Tripoli. Uh, most famously, that is the amphibious assault ship, which was commissioned in 1966, served in Vietnam, and was decommissioned in 1995. There is a new Tripoli coming, same class of ship. This one was laid down in 2014. And there are some great ships in the junkyard scenes here. Uh, looks like a couple of star bases way off in the distance. We see a Klingon battle cruiser, a Stargazer style ship, Miranda class ships, and even a ship that looks like it was designed by Andy Probert sometime in the 1970s. Wonder if that design will ever make a comeback. And Ken, we have a cavalcade of guest stars. So, yes, there's Leonard Nimoy as Spock, and uh, this was shot after they had wrapped Star Trek VI. So there is a long gap between this and the next time he would be Spock, which would come in 2009. Returning also, we have Joanna Miles as Sarek's wife, Perrin, and Denise Crosby, of course, is back as Sela. We have a big-time Trek returning guest star, Malachi Throne. He plays Pardak here, but of course we saw him first in the Menagerie as Commodore Mendez, and he had that uncredited voice work as one of the Telosians in the cage. We mentioned before that Malachi was on all the cool shows of the 60s and 70s, Bionic Man, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Land of the Giants, A Man from Uncle, The Untouchables, Lancelot, Link, Secret Chimp, Electra Woman and Dinah Girl. I did say it was all the cool shows. (laughs) We lost Malachi Throne in 2013. We have Vidal Peterson as Detan, the young Romulan who is excited about reunification. He started out young on series like Mork and Mindy, in which he appeared three times as the Elder. And then he was in The Thornbirds, later in Beverly Hills 90210. And his last credit is his only other Star Trek credit, which is one episode of Deep Space Nine. Graham Jarvis is Dokachin, the keeper of the ship Junkyard. Now, you may not recognize him with all the makeup, but he is quite a prolific character actor, and you've definitely seen him in other movies and TV shows. He's definitely a that guy. If you say that guy, you mean a handful of people, and Graham Jarvis is one of those that guys. His breakout was his regular role as Charlie on Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. After that, you saw him in The Love Boat, Heart to Heart, as a regular on the TV version of Fame. Uh, let's see, Murder, She Wrote, Murphy Brown, ER, Six Feet Under, and a recurring role on Seventh Heaven. Norman Large plays Proconsul Neral. Among his first professional credits are the movie Pretty Woman and TV shows Quantum Leap. And he appears again in The Next Generation as a different character. Then we'll see him again in Deep Space Nine playing two other characters and again in Voyager. More recently, he has appeared in Veronica Mars, NYPD Blue, Jag, and more. Daniel Roebuck is Jaron. He started relatively young with a handful of TV credits like Love Boat. And in the years after this episode, he built a very impressive resume. He was a 
recurring character on Matlock, uh, Nash Bridges and others. I find it interesting that he played a character in the unauthorized behind the scenes show about Three's Company, then came back for another one of those unauthorized shows, this time playing Gary Marshall in the one about Mark and Mindy. He did a short called Orion Slave Girls Must Die. You can pick up the connection there. And more recently, he's a recurring character in Lost, uh, The Walking Dead web series, and The Man in the High Castle. The Soup Lady, not to be confused with the Soup Nazi, is Mimi Cousins, another actor with a long career starting in the 60s with soap operas, then making the guest star rounds on shows like Quincy M.E., Moonlighting, there you go, Ken, Chicago Hope, Seinfeld, Studio 60 on Sunset Strip, and much, much more. We have Billy Bastiana as the Ferengi Omog. He's mostly in smaller films than you can find him on TV in the 90s in guest star roles on In Living Color, Ellie Law, and Seinfeld. The piano player Amari is performed by Harriet C. Leader, who has just a handful of TV credits to her name, like Alien Nation and Married with Children. The voice of the character, though, was done by Judy Durand, who is a very accomplished voice actor. She can be heard as Space Dock Control in Star Trek Three, then in Max Headroom, a lot of Star Trek video games. And more importantly, we hear much more of her since she is the voice of the computer on Deep Space Nine. And finally, here going full Klingon is well-known character actor Stephen Root. He's been in everything. Everything can everything. Just look up all the movies and he's in them. Uh, he is a regular, of course, in news radio. He was on Night Court, Buffy, Quantum Leap, L.A. Law. He's done voices for animations like Buzz Lightyear, the series Buzz Lightyear, uh, Finding Nemo, Ice Age, American Dad, King of the Hill, Batman, Kung Fu Panda, the series. You can catch him as Nathaniel Sackett in turn, Washington Spies. Also, Boardwalk Empire, From the Earth to the Moon. He's Stephen Root. Uh, what else can be said about him? <laughs> oh, no, wait. The man's just got a massive career. What? It feels like it feels like you miss. Oh, Office Space. The Office Space, of course. Office yeah. Space. It, 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 he is amazing because he, he also did a he also did a turn on one season at the last season, I believe, of uh, West Wing. I mean, the guy's the guy's amazing. Mm-hmm. I, I love seeing him. And what's really neat is when you can see him turn up as like you know drama as well, because as Jimmy James on news radio. I mean, I thought he nailed comedy just like crazy, but yeah. uh, but he really he really is something. And I cannot tell you how many times I watched this before I realized that that was Stephen Root. And it kept saying at the beginning, Stephen Root. And I was like, w- where? <laughs> where? Where? Right. Oh, right. behind the Klingon? Yeah, yeah. No, he's the Klingon. It's pretty okay. remarkable. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable because for a guy who does comedy so well, yeah. he absolutely loses himself in drama as well to the extent of something like this where you just sort of forget that it's Stephen Root, that there he is, full Klingon. It is Spock, as you have never seen him before. On 1.1 episodes of Star Trek, The Next Generation... Prologue. The Enterprise has been pulled off a terraforming mission because one of Starfleet's top ambassadors has gone missing. Worse than that, he's turned up on Romulus, the Romulan homeworld. If he's defecting, the cost could be dear. He knows a lot. But surely, Ambassador Spock would never turn against the Federation. Yes, Spock, that one, the one we searched for, the one that saved the whales, the one who accidentally created the Kelvin timeline, which is Totally not a thing yet. Your favorite Sporehoffer and mine, that Spock, 
is among the Romulans. Act 1. This whole thing is really weird for Captain Picard. He only met Spock once, but he grocks Spock, thanks to the mind meld he shared with Spock's semi-estranged dad, Sarek. The Enterprise will go to Sarek first to see what, if anything, he can tell them about Spock's holiday on Romulus. Also, there's some Vulcan stuff that was found by the Enterprise where Vulcan stuff totally shouldn't be. The damage to the stuff was so great the crew can tell almost nothing for certain. Just that it's Vulcan, it was made for use in space, and it's seriously destroyed. Riker will be working on that mystery. At Vulcan, Sarek's wife, Perrin, is angry. Not with Picard, but with Spock. He didn't even say goodbye to his father before he left, and he spoke out publicly against some of Sarek's political positions. Now Sarek is dying. He wants to make amends with his son, something that looks less and less likely. Picard asks to see Sarek, and because of the mind meld they shared, Perrin agrees. Sarek's in bad shape. His emotions have taken over. Still, he hears Picard ask about Spock and snaps out of it a bit. Then he hears Spock's on Romulus, and he snaps out of it all the way. Maybe Spock went to Romulus to meet the Romulan senator, Pardak. Pardak and Spock met decades ago, and Spock maintained communications, illogical as Sarek thought it was. Then Sarek slips back out of reason. Mostly. Picard says he knows that Sarek loves Spock, and Sarek asks Picard to tell Spock that. Act 2. From Vulcan, the Enterprise is on its way to the Klingon homeworld. They'll be crossing the neutral zone to get to Romulus. To do that, they'll need a cloaked ship. Picard figures his buddy Gowron, leader of the Klingon High Council, can spare one of those. Though Picard is being ignored by Gowron. So he threatens him, telling a Klingon underling that he's appreciative of Gowron's help. Unless he doesn't get it. If he doesn't, he'll get help from some other Klingon, and they'll have Picard's appreciation. And suddenly Picard has access to a cloaked ship. Meanwhile, we're learning more about Pardak. He's been in public service his whole life, which is weird. He's considered sort of a radical on Romulus. A peacenik. Also, it's confirmed that Spock is on Romulus with Pardak. And what of our mystery medals? Well, they're part of a Vulcan navigational deflector array. Who'd want a Vulcan one of those, and why? It's from the T'Pau, a decommissioned ship at rest in the surplus depot on Quelar 2. Riker will take the Enterprise to Quelar 2 to investigate once Picard and Data head off on the Klingon ship to Romulus. Act 3. The Klingon captain, annoyed and not being told what's going on and why, shows Picard and Data to their room. Singular. Meanwhile, the Enterprise is at Quelar 2. Klim Dokachin, quartermaster, surplus depot Z15, is not interested in helping Riker, so Riker adds a bit of sex appeal, in the form of Counselor Troy. For the pleasure of Troy's company, Dukachin is very helpful, looking up what they want and finding that the T'Pau is, um, huh, not in Surplus Depot Z15. That's a mystery for Dukachin to figure out. Jordy wants to know what happened to the T'Pau's deflector array. Dukachin says it was routed to the Tripoli, which, oh, what do you know, is also not in Surplus Depot Z15. But they just beamed some stuff to the Tripoli yesterday. There's another shipment being beamed to it in a couple of hours. Riker figures some other ship is slotting into the empty space where the Tripoli should be. He shuts down most of the Enterprise, making it look like a husk, and waits for the Tripoli imposter. Act 4. When last we left Data and Picard, they'd been shown to their single occupancy room for two. That's no problem. Data can just stand there, motionless, seemingly staring off into nothing or straight at Picard giving Picard the willies as he tries to sleep. Okay, new plan, they'll keep working. Or they would have, were they not called to the bridge. 
The Klingon captain has news. Ambassador Sarek is dead. Back at Surplus Depot Z15, Riker's plan works. The Tripoli imposter shows up. The Enterprise powers back up and orders the ship to identify itself. Built for battle, the imposter chooses to fight. The Enterprise returns fire, gently, like little more than a warning shot, really. But the imposter is so laden with armaments that just the warning shot was enough to cause major damage. The Tripoli imposter blows up. Blows up real good. Act 5. Picard and Data are now disguised as Romulans, having been outfitted back on the Enterprise. Data can't help noticing how pensive Picard has seemed since learning of Sarek's death. Well, yeah. Picard has to tell Spock, so that's a bummer. Data doesn't get it. Vulcans are logical. Death is the logical end of Sarek's illness. Spock, being Vulcan, will get that. Though Picard says it's not that simple, even for Vulcans, let alone a half-human Vulcan. News of his father's death will be tough for Smock to hear. But hear it he will soon, because hello, we are in orbit around Romulus. Two to beam down to a location Data has identified as Pardek's stomping grounds. Pardek's not there right now, though. He's meeting with the Proconsul. The Proconsul, who knows that Jean-Luc Picard is on Romulus somewhere. Have security forces alerted, and keep an eye out yourself. Cool? Meanwhile, Data and Picard are looking for the Senator. After consuming, if not enjoying, some soup, they find Pardak. Okay, Pardak's people find them, taking them off the street to a hideout where they meet Pardak and Spock for like three seconds of the episode. Other prologue. Spock's like, what are you doing here, Picard? And Picard's like, what are you doing here? And Spock's like, it's none of Starfleet's business. And Picard's like, yes, again. And Spock's like, I'm on a personal mission to peace. And Picard's like, that sort of cowboy diplomacy won't fly anymore. You personally are talking peace for everybody. So you have to talk it over with me. Also, I have bad news. And Spock's like, man, Sarek's dead, huh? Walk with me, Picard. Spock knows about Picard's mind melt with Sarek. Picard says, Sarek was a great man. Also, I was with him right before I came here. He was proud of you. He loved you. Spock replies that emotional disarray was a symptom of what ailed his father, but Picard says, no, these feelings were from the heart. Hey, remember how Spock didn't want to talk about what he was doing on Romulus? Yeah, he'd apparently rather talk about that than feelings. He tells Picard that there are people in the Romulan hierarchy, people like Pardak, who want to see a reunification of the Vulcan and Romulan people. Pardak asked him to come now to get the party started. Picard is skeptical, but Spock says he couldn't ignore the potential benefits of reunification. As for why he didn't tell anyone where he was going or what he was doing, he couldn't risk involving anyone else and letting what happened to Jim Kirk and his crew while negotiating peace with the Klingons happen again. Side note, nothing lasting happened with Kirk and his crew, but that was before anyone had seen Star Trek VI, even though it took place decades earlier? Hmm. Anyway, Picard says Spock's logic escapes him, and he, Picard, is not leaving until Spock's work here is done. Other Act 1. Data needs access to the computers aboard the Klingon ship. In trade, he'll share whatever information he finds out about the Romulan Empire with the Klingons. Also, they're going to be here for a while. On Romulus, Spock tells Picard of the new, young, idealistic proconsul who may be willing to forge a lasting peace. He also says there are pockets of Romulans looking to reunify with Vulcan all over the planet. He's spoken with people from four provinces. Picard has a hard time buying it, and is accused by Spock of having a closed mind. 
closed minds have kept these planets apart for years. One can keep one's mind closed or look for a way to make peace. Spock has chosen the latter. Almost on cue, a young Vulcan comes to show Spock an old book about the Vulcan separation read to him at meetings, though he is scolded for having the book in public by Pardak, who joins Spock and Picard. Walking through the city, Pardak says he believes the children are the future. The ones who want to reunify with Vulcan, anyway. Old people like him won't be able to hold on to prejudice and hostility. The young ones won't allow it. And meeting Spock has only emboldened them. Pardak says Spock can talk it over with, wait for it, the proconsul who wants to meet with Spock. Huh. Other act two. Remember that ship the Enterprise blew up last episode? Riker had hoped to talk to its captain. Unable to do that, he goes to talk to the captain's ex. She plays music in a sort of low-rent cantina, full of scum and villainy. Their conversation's flirtatious. This is Riker we're talking about. It ends with a duet and a promise from the female to help. Stick around for a couple of days. Sooner or later, a fat Ferengi arms trader named Omog will drop in. That's who you want to talk to. Back on Romulus, Pardek brings Spock to meet pro-council Neral. He's affable. Enthusiastic, even. Reunification has to happen at some point, so why not start now? He and Spock will start something that'll redraw the face of the quadrant. Spock is surprised, but Neral says this is the way the worlds are going. Involvement in the Klingon War, endless conflicts with the Federation. The Romulan people are tired of it. So tired that Neral is prepared to publicly support talks between Romulus and Vulcan. Hey, good talk. Let's do it again tomorrow. Of course, Neural's talk smells of the waste of a Salot. When Spock leaves, Sela, the blonde Romulan, daughter of Tasha Yar, is revealed to have been listening. Not good. In the literal and figurative underground, Spock is telling the dissident Romulans of Neral's proposal. They're good. Really good. Pardak believes, as do his young followers, but Picard thinks it's all too good to be true, and Spock agrees. Still, he came to talk reunification, and he'll meet with Neral as planned. Away from the others, Picard thinks Spock's emotions may be getting the best of him. Spock disagrees. Pure logic tells him that what he's going to do won't work, but he's half-human and thinks beyond pure logic. His gut tells him that this is something he has to do, even if it leads to a Romulan trap, since even that will tell them more than they already know. Other Act 3 Back aboard the orbiting Klingon ship, Data is having trouble breaking the Romulan encryption. Spock offers to help and starts talking over Picard with Data. He's good. Dispassionate. There's an almost Vulcan quality about Picard in Spock's estimation. He can see why Sarek chose to mind meld with him. Data finds the idea of Vulcan qualities in Picard interesting since Picard is one of Data's models for being more human. More human? Ew, says Spock. Physically superior, totally logical, unencumbered by emotion. You are like what every Vulcan wants to be. Yeah, says Data. Meanwhile, you keep stuffing your human half into a tiny little ball, so you're basically giving up the one thing I want. Funny how the worlds work. Back in the smuggler's den, Omog, the fat Ferengi arms dealer, has shown up. Riker comes in, roughs him up a little, and gets the info he wants. Omog delivered the stolen Vulcan tech to Galorndon Core near the neutral zone. To whom, and for what purpose, he does not know. Other Act 4. Picard and Riker are talking over subspace about their respective situations. With Galorndon Core's proximity to the neutral zone, it seems obvious that what's going on with the Proconsul's reunification talk and the stolen Vulcan tech are connected. 
but no one can say how just yet. Riker will head to Galorndon Core to see what he can see. Meanwhile, Data has spotted a transmission from Romulan Intelligence to Galorndon Core. A simple message, 1400. So it seems likely that that's connected, too. Back on Romulus, the kid who brought the book to Spock earlier has brought him some D&D dice. Okay, not really. They're toys meant to teach the basics of the Vulcan language. The boy's parents wanted him to understand the Vulcan language in preparation for the day when Romulans and Vulcans would once again live together. They just look like D&D dice. Picard and Data tell Pardak and Spock of the secret Romulan transmission. Now Spock knows that Proconsul Neral is up to something. 1400 coincides with the time set for Neral's reunification announcement. 1400 hours tomorrow. Who he was signaling and why are still unknowns, but Spock's sure now that Neral has been deceiving him. Pardak wonders aloud what the stolen Vulcan ship has to do with all of this. Though dramatically, Sela emerges, saying all will become clear soon. Pardak wonders aloud again who could have betrayed them to Sela. Spock says, logically, it could only have been Pardak himself. <laughs> yeah, it was me. Bye. Sela tells Spock to not worry. Reunification will happen. It'll just be in the form of the Romulan conquest of Vulcan. Other Act 5. Here's Sela's plan. Spock will read a speech announcing the imminent arrival of a peace envoy from Romulus to Vulcan. Of course, it's not a peace envoy. Not one, but three stolen Vulcan ships will head to Vulcan, filled to the brim with a Romulan invasion force. Yeah, says Spock. I'm not going to read this. No problem. Sela has a holographic Spock ready to go. It's stilted in its delivery, but... By the time anyone realizes it's a fakey fake fake, the invasion will have happened. Then, Picard, Spock, and Data are left unguarded in Sela's office, with the Romulans unaware that Data and Spock have access to their computers. The two go about planning some sort of diversion. Meanwhile, the Enterprise is tracking the three Vulcan ships crossing the neutral zone. They move to intercept, despite orders that seem to be from Picard to stay put. Back in Sela's office... Huh? Picard, Spock, and Data are gone, and Riker's there, with a couple of Enterprise security types. Except no, he isn't. It's all holograms and blinds rigged up by Data using Sela's equipment. Sela says it's too late. Hollow Spock's announcement will be made soon, and the invasion will be underway. Of course, Spock and company now have Romulan disruptors. When the announcement is made, it's the real Spock, warning of an invasion force. Riker continues his course to intercept. On Romulus, Data's figured an escape route for himself, Spock, and Picard. He also drops Sela with a Vulcan nerve pinch. The Enterprise is caught up with the Romulan invasion force, and so has a Romulan warbird. It destroys the Vulcan ships, full of thousands of Romulan soldiers, then cloaks itself and slips away. On Romulus, the underground is still underground, and still plans to work toward a peaceful reunification with Vulcan. And Spock will stay to help. Despite the false start with the proconsul, he believes reunification will happen. Eventually. Picard has one gift for Spock. While the captain and Sarek melded minds, Spock and Sarek never did. Picard offers Spock that opportunity. He begins as we reach the end.
Pockets of Romulans, great band name. <laughs> Pockets of Romulans. <laughs> that's, that's not a bad. You're right. That's not a bad band name. I don't know which yeah. cover band of mine it is. Oh well, I could. No, make it. not even a cover band. Really? No, you don't think so? Because it's just, it's going to be like a '90s alt rock All right. thing. It can be new. Cause, yeah. Because I was yeah. thinking Pockets of Romulans could be my Warp Eleven cover band. Oh man. Okay. Yeah, that's not bad. That's <laughs> or not my bad. Five Year Mission cover band. If we want to spread the love a little bit. Sure. Either way. Yeah. Hey, um, I feel bad because, as you mentioned at the top of the show, you have been stuck doing these epic two-part things. And I honestly, if you had let me do it this week, it would have been a lot different. You ready? Okay. Part one. All right. Part one. Where's Spock? He's on Romulus. Part two. Will the Romulans and Vulcans get back together? No. You see, why didn't you say that before? <laughs> Dude, are you kidding me? All right. That, no, that was it. No, that's that good. It. No, you're that right. You're right. That's that, yeah. we could we could probably skip to the end now. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, since you went to the trouble, yeah, we'll, we'll talk in a little further detail here. Uh, <laughs> let's see. We have a shout out to Gowron. Here's a question. Why doesn't the Federation have a cloaking device at this point or at least have the plans to build one? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Seriously. I mean, yeah. didn't Kirk actually steal them a cloaking device in the original series? And that was like a century ago. Yeah, and didn't Kirk bring a cloaking bird of prey back to Earth at the end of Star Trek Four? Less than a century ago, yes. <laughs> and aren't the Klingons our, you know, freaking friends at this point? Right. <laughs> also yeah. decades in the making. We we got a guy on yeah. our team. Yeah. yeah, and then and then with uh, you know, Klingons and Romulans having built them, wouldn't you think somebody in the Federation would have figured out how to make a cloaking device at this mm-hmm. point. Yeah. Even if you don't take the one that you stole or take the other one that you stole or, you know, borrow one from your friends, the Klingons, wouldn't you think somebody would have said, man, the Romulans and the Klingons can do this. It's I, I mean, nobody in the offense, but the Klingons can do this. <laughs> you, you should be able to call a Ferengi and get one without any problem. You know, you should, actually. I wonder, I seriously wonder if it's a philosophical issue. Like if the Federation's, you know, bent towards transparency means no ships with transparency. but then how far do you take that like oh we have ships that can blow up anything that can get anywhere at any time but but no we don't want to be invisible yeah they're they're clearly labeled though they are clearly labeled as ships that could blow up anything anytime Mm -hmm. you will see them coming i mean you know right it, it may actually be it may actually be a transparency thing honestly it may be philosophical i cannot believe that nobody in the federation could figure it out yeah everybody outside of the federation can figure it out Right, right. Um, uh, Dr. Crusher, she has some new skills here, and I wonder how she acquired such skills as a makeup artist. Um, yeah. I get it. She has a background in theater, at least in dance, so maybe through that. Um, I feel like maybe it was the right time to see a Bolian barber again, maybe putting the finishing yeah. touches on a Romulan bowl cut. Hey, remind me, didn't Kirk, not to keep referencing TOS, but mm-hmm. maybe it's that kind of show, didn't Kirk actually have, like, weren't his ears altered yeah, surgically. To look Romulan? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but now we're just doing, like, latex. Yep. Okay. <laughs> That's <laughs> just checking. Yeah, different times, you know. Having said that, I do like the interplay between the Klingons and Picard uh, when he and Data are dressed up in their Romulan gear. It's really funny. And, of course, Picard, prior to that, when he first beams over to the Romulan, uh, to the Klingon ship, rather, and he's like, uh, yeah, but hard bed? That's what I want. I want a hard bed. Oh, you're going to serve me gach? I can't wait to have gach. He's fantastic in that. It's a nice little scene. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I did 
mentioned before, I think I actually mentioned it when we did the Enterprise incident about how I kind of always hated it when you take the lead in a show and that person has to go undercover as someone they're not. So sort of like James Bond and You Only Live Twice or Kirk in the Enterprise incident. But this time it actually kind of works in a weird way. Maybe it's because Patrick Stewart has such gravitas as Picard. He kind of makes a good Romulan. Hmm. And in fact, I thought he blended in better than Spock as a Vulcan blends in to the Romulan world. Maybe it's the shoulder pads. I don't know. But um, something could about be. It see, works. to me, it was just exciting to see Brent Spiner not yellow. Yeah, no kidding. He must have been happy about that. Hey, guess what? You get to not be yellow. Oh, but we're going to cover you in prosthetics and it'll be brown. But you don't have to wear the contacts this week. Mm-hmm. So that's good. Yeah, very true. Yeah. yeah. Um, I really do like the supply yard quartermaster. He's pretty great. And I love that no matter how advanced the 24th century is, there is still bureaucracy and just bad attitudes. Uh, He's kind of entertaining like that. And then that scene with him and Troy, it's slightly creepy, but it's still Hmm. pretty funny. You think it's creepy, honestly? Well, because I mean, he he owned up to it right away. He was like, so your pal there probably thinks I don't see many women and I don't. So what do you want to know? Yeah, yeah, right. But then he's sort of giving her the eye, you, you well, know. Yeah, it, which okay, that's true. She is—is is she being objectified in this in this in this thing? Because because I really felt like everybody was above board about the whole thing. Right? Oh yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean I, I'm not making a thing of it. I, I, I'm not. Okay. I mean, God forbid, I should call out something sexist in Star Trek. We we don't want that to ever happen, <laughs> ever. I'm just saying I wasn't sure that it was, I mean, because everybody was so open about it, I don't even know that this would be sexist. Yeah, no, no, no. Which I know is weird for me to say, you know. (laughs) Being sexist and creepy are are usually, well, they can be the same thing, but in this case, you know, calling those sort of two different things. So I get it. There's kind of a fine line between creepy and sexist. This guy just falls (laughs) onto the creepy side. He's just a little awkward, a little weird. He's forward it's maybe a little inappropriate for the workplace but like you said he owns up to it we all kind of accept it it's a funny scene it's funny because he's kind of awkward and we feel a little awkward because of the scene it's not bb new earth in first contact no no yeah it's it's more like yeah ellie girls don't see him often you're a girl i'll talk to you right (laughs) and and by girl i of course mean woman i I, well okay (laughs) Right. Oh, yeah. Let's move on. What do you say? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Speaking of creepy, awkward, weird, that data Picard scene in the Klingon crew quarters where Picard is trying to go to sleep. Pretty great. Pretty priceless moment. Yeah, it is. There's one thing that's out of character, but the comedy, I'm I'm so willing to let it go. Mm -hmm. When when data's like, oh, I'll look the other way. But then he keeps his eyes on Picard as he's turning. That's no way data does that. No way data does that. But it's hysterical. Yes. It is. Yeah. yeah. But I thought the same thing, too. That look is definitely played for comedy. <laughs> but yeah, it's that, really that look is Brent Spiner. That that look is not data. That look is Brent Spiner. I mean, maybe I mean, obviously he was directed to do it or whatever, but that's not. No, there's no part of data that would do that. Mm-hmm. But that's it. it it's fine because it made me laugh each time. Yeah. Let's talk about something that is not great. Um, <laughs> everything on Romulus. I didn't know what it, to expect out of going to Romulus. 
But mm-hmm. everything on Romulus is kind of like brightly lit, these subtle pink hues. They have a very active yeah. cafe society, uh, though limited menus. <laughs> they like soup and pretty much only soup. A lot. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, in fairness, though, it was a soup place. I mean, that's okay. I mean. it's a souperia directly across from you know, wherever they were hanging out. Right. I'll tell you, I couldn't help thinking actually of the um, terrible 80s wallpaper that you hated so much in season one of Next mm-hmm. Gen. Yep. Had a big problem uh, with yeah. that. Yeah, Romulus is is very um, like corporate video from the early nineties. Yes, you know yes. it's it's very yeah it's very yeah. <laughs> it's a little painful, honestly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, the design work on Romulus is just terrible. I mean, it's right out of the Memphis Group. Do you do you know what the Memphis Group is? Um, in the eighties, and it really kind of took off mid to late eighties and the early nineties. This sort of like bad geometric like if you were to just look up bad 80s design if you think about um the family in uh beetlejuice just sort of abstract strange geometric things all over the place that's sort of memphis design not from memphis but actually it's an italian design group and it just made me think of that like everywhere there's a sort of a random geometric thing on the wall or on a desk or on a table and you just think man who designed all of romulus because they (laughs) they they need to not be designing all of romulus um yeah yeah. let's move on to other things like uh like scenes and actors spock and picard their scenes mostly are pretty wonderful um but more so that we know that picard is walking around with a piece of sarek's personality i think that lends something to everything we have in all of their scenes together it makes that mind meld so much more intimate uh, and then mm-hmm. in retrospect i'm kind of surprised at how often and how cavalierly spock did one in the original series, because you really, once you've done that, you carry not just knowledge, but personality, feeling, essence of that other person with you. And um, Spock, you know, in the original series, they show up on a planet and Spock's like, oh, you want to mind meld with that or that or that thing? I can do yeah. that. <laughs> you know. Well, it really wasn't until um, Star Trek, I guess, end of Star Trek 2 through all of Star Trek 3 that we got a sense of how intimate that was. Like in mm-hmm. the 60s, when you know the original series was on, it was just sort of like, yeah, ESP, mind meld, you know brain control oh, like it was it was just kind of like a yeah just a plot device yeah it's not until you actually start developing the characters more which you and i had argued during the movies you don't really get character development out of those characters until you start making the movies right that's when it's sort of like star trek 3 is where the mind meld started to mean more and actually where the klingons picked up honor Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you, that's it, it's interesting because it, it's one of the lesser movies, but it, it, it turns out that it's when you think about it, it's, it's a turning point for a few different things that happened in the uh, in the Star Trek universe. Yeah, no, it's very true. Um, let's see. Another thing that happens here, uh, Picard asks Data to hack the Romulan computers, then share that information with the Klingons. Which mm-hmm. is totally cool because the Romulans are the bad guys. I mean, you know, in any other case, hacking computers would be bad. But in this case, like, oh, no, just go ahead. Just go ahead and go through their entire security system and just give all that to the Klingons. Interesting that in TV and film, you can do that very in a very cavalier manner. And certainly 
in the early 1990s on TV, you could do that in a very cavalier manner. In real life, if you just say like, oh, sure, well, we're going to a a foreign country, maybe uh, an enemy country, and oh, we're just going to give an order to break into their stuff. Sure, we'll do that. We'll just break into their stuff. It's cool. They're the bad guys. It's kind of an interesting moment, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Actually, it caught you much more than it caught me. I mean, I saw it, and I thought, well, of course they're going to try to break into the computer. What I don't understand is how Data Mm -hmm. uh, couldn't do it, but, but Spock could. Well, they had to do it together. They had to do it together. It was that 29th, you know, that 29th key code that just couldn't do it. That's that's the most difficult one. Mm -hmm. Um, The scenes in the bar. Okay. Uh, um, uh, Cute, but this is really stretching it. I mean, I felt like the, Mm -hmm. the Klingon opera bit is really funny. Because it, yeah. we have all these moments with Worf that, that he's sort of awkward and he's trying so hard to be more Klingon than Klingon. And this is a good example of that. Um, but man, do those scenes just go on for a long time. And you just feel like we're just trying to make sure we keep the Enterprise away as long as we can. <laughs> you know? kind of. yeah. yeah, when she says, can you be here for a couple of days? And you're uh, like, oh, we are going to be here a couple of days, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. By the way, um, I don't normally care about the makeup. Mm-hmm. I mean, usually I'm fine with it, even if it's a little shocky. Mm-hmm. Were those sparkly pipe cleaners? Oh, sure. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. I thought they were. So yeah. like, yeah. like the kind I can get like at Michael's or Hobby Lobby or, mm-hmm. you know, wherever mm-hmm. you get your arts and crafts. Yep. That is, that is what those were, right? Yep. That's, that's what you do. Okay. Yeah. If you're going to be right. that character, yeah. if you, if you will cosplay her next year, Ken, then <laughs> that's. I cannot tell you how many ways that's not going to happen. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, I, I did think that uh, Spock stuck out a bit like a sore thumb on Romulus uh, and man, is he got. Uh, they kind of needed Troy. If you're going to pick somebody to go with you, Data is a good choice, but I would also pick Troy. I think she would be mm-hmm. a good person to take on an away mission like that. Um, I also thought it was interesting that Riker doesn't trust the message from Picard sent from Romulus, even though it has the right security code. They made a point of saying that. And I just thought this is one of those moments where sometimes you go on your gut, but only when your gut is right. So he just yeah. kind of knew, like, oh, okay, well, this time, even though everything is above board, this time my gut is right. I feel like we're being a tiny bit nitpicky here, but I'm going to go with, like, one more. Do it. So Riker says, let's get out of here. Mm-hmm. And Worf says, hey, the captain said stay here. Mm-hmm. And Riker says, I know what his orders were. Okay. Worf never actually does that. Right. It's just to remind us what the stakes are. There's no way Worf would have it would have even begun to countermand, right? Because Worf is about the org chart in the same way that you know TOS Spock was about the org chart. Oh yeah, Riker's in command, so that's it. Mm-hmm. Riker Riker says, "Hey, run us into that sun." <laughs> you know? so Worf would say, "How fast?" I mean, that really is. I mean, so that kind of that that part kind of bothered me. I have to talk about a scene that I absolutely loved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you're going to be surprised because yeah. it involves Sila. Yeah. Oh, really? I okay. love the scene with Data suggesting that Sela change careers so that she could do more writing. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Uh, that was really great. And I also loved her proclamation that she hates Vulcans. Um, this was not laugh track comedy, but like that whole scene up until the point where we see holographic Spock, I think. Yeah. Um, I, I loved that scene. I loved her in that role. I loved her in that delivery. Um, yeah. yeah. And I have probably liked Sela 
well, and counting this time might be the one time. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, one little thing to point out here, those Vulcan ships are moving really slowly. Warp one, we're told. Um, <laughs> except that right after okay, you that... you say that's really slowly. Can you move warp one? I Personally, no. Uh, <laughs> no. The, the photons bouncing off my body at the moment, uh, coming from the computer screen, those are going at warp one. All but right. here's the thing. The very next scene, Sila says the Romulan forces will be too entrenched on Vulcan before anybody can do anything about it. Oh, look, they're there already. So Vulcan mm-hmm. and Romulus are super close. They must be, so. you know, a stone's yeah. throw from each other. And by the way, there are 2000 Romulan troops on those ships. Yeah. That's the invasion yeah. force. I yeah. get it. I get that Vulcans are pacifists, but they have defenses. They've got a wicked Vulcan nerve pinch. They have technology. They have these things. Did you know that the Fat Therangi was a pilot for the first comedy spin-off in the Star Trek universe? This is, of course, completely untrue. So something we didn't talk about in the last segment, because how could you really? It belongs here. The first third of part one is about Sarek. And honestly, it's some of the most emotionally devastating stuff I've seen on Star Trek. You know, there are these great moments, um, Spock's death and the Wrath of Khan that just always punches you in the gut as many times as you've seen that movie. Um, Mm -hmm. This, I remembered that this was a thing that happened, but I didn't remember how emotionally uh, impactful it was. For so many reasons. I, I mean, first of all, because these two great actors are are having this really sincere moment on screen, and we had introduced this thing about Sarek several episodes before, uh, where we started to see his degeneration. But it just goes back to this idea that there's such a tragedy at the heart of Vulcans, even though they've been held up a, as this ideal in Star Trek. Um, this idea that these these characters who who represent this whole culture have elevated themselves to such an extent with the their dedication to logic, and yet can't come to grips with the emotional reality of of loss. You know, th- there is something so sad there, and made even more sad because Sarek refuses to reconcile with Spock, and Spock refuses to reconcile with Sarek. It- it- it's so incredibly depressing, but played so beautifully because Mark Leonard and Patrick Stewart are so great in that moment. Followed up by Data saying to Picard, as you mentioned in the, the recap, death is the logical result of Sarek's illness. Yeah. Yeah, uh, of course. But it's still so much more complicated than that, even when you're talking about Vulcans. It gets to that hidden emotional core that they don't deny, but they keep trying to repress. And and that is the sad part, you know, maybe saying to us that repressing our emotions is not such a great idea, even if we hold logic in such high esteem. This sense of regret things that are unsaid, the inability to resolve conflict, it's huge, and it permeates the entire episode. It seems odd that they would not choose to resolve their differences because 
you know, life is finite, even if you just want to look at it in a purely logical sense. So maybe I'm skipping ahead here to the end of our show, but I felt like there was this message throughout that whether it's personal conflict or in the bigger scale, this political conflict, you can only go on anger and hurt feelings and ideology for so long. Spock and Sarek did it for years. There's the tragedy in their relationship. The Romulans have been doing it for centuries. And the Vulcans, obviously, being the other half of that equation, have been doing this for centuries. Um, mm-hmm. Is it Perrin who says of oh, Spock and Sarek, both proud and both stubborn? And you could be talking about either one. And you could be talking about either culture as well. This intersection of hubris with ideology is so throughout the storyline uh, with Spock and then with the Romulans as well. Um, but I, I guess that, you know, for whatever strengths or weaknesses the episode has, all of that tragedy serves to put an emotional button on what would otherwise just sort of be politicians doing things with politics that might feel very cold and might make you feel very removed. So I'm glad that there is that part of the story that, tells us that there's an emotional impact and an emotional heart to something that would Mm -hmm. otherwise just sort of be a big picture political sort of several steps removed from personal okay can i ask a question though i mean because yes here's the thing we 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 come to love sarek Mm -hmm. i mean i believe when when you and i first met sarek we were like wow totally see where spock's daddy issues come from oh yeah yeah but maybe it's because because we love Spock, that we love Sarek. And so you say, it's wonderful to see this emotional thing, because otherwise this is just a, a relatively cold episode. I wanted to ask you about Data and Spock. Okay. Um, are they two sides of the same coin? I mean, one once done with his humanity, while the other wants nothing more than to be human? Hmm. I mean, is that... Because hmm. here's what I actually found myself wondering there. I guess the question that I had is, is there depth to that episode, or is it talk that's meant to sound deep without actually hitting the mark? And I got to ask the same stuff. Look, you get a tour de force, uh, tour, tour de force. Did I say that? Yeah, sure. Right? Yeah. You get an awesome performance out of Mark <laughs> Leonard, right? And you right. get an amazing performance out of Mark Leonard. And I mean, it's a scene, but it's, it's like one of many scenes. I mean, it, that deserves its own episode. It seems to me even different than what happened with Sarek before, because now you've got, you know, Spock in the equation as well. And you've got Spock having to come to terms with that. Which, you know, he, he kind of barely does. So I don't know. I mean, yeah, you get a great performance. Are you getting are you getting depth at that point? I mean, does, does throwing on a layer of, of, of tear jerk in a way um, actually actually make make it better? Well, no, I mean, but that's that's how it works, though. I mean, for as much as we can keep talking about what Star Trek means and what is important about Star Trek. Remember when we had our conversation mm-hmm. months ago uh, uh, saying, well, what should be in the next Star Trek series? What should it be about and how how should that play out? All I ask is that it's about people, people that can be related to people that can tell an emotional story. Here's the thing. Mm-hmm. That moment with Sarek is mm-hmm. a moment that will be played out and has been played out by so many people in their lives. Seeing the degeneration and the death of a loved one who mm-hmm. has advanced in years, 
there is something very universal about that moment. So yeah. if Star Trek chooses to tell stories that are these big picture macro politics, planetary politics, that's great. That serves to build the mythology of Star Trek, and I'm fine with that. But at the end of the day, if that's all you do and you don't tie it back to something that has an emotional, relatable impact, then I think you've made a really big mistake. You have to have characters mm. at the heart of it that give you something emotionally to tie to. And, I, I, you know, there's no way I can't be emotionally affected by that opening scene. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I, I get it. I mean, I think what, what you pose as a question is legitimate, but that is what Star Trek set up for itself, whether it was intentional or not, certainly arguably not intentionally. They didn't know when they were making Journey to Babel that 20 plus years later, you would have that same actor back and you would play out this dramatic yeah. death scene. But they really lucked into the idea that you get to play this long arc and Spock gets to play this long arc. Uh, about yeah. what he's going through. So, you know, even if it's a happy accident, great, use that happy accident and make it something that is powerful and, and impactful. Um, hey, um, mm -hmm. before we move off, really quickly, before we yeah. move off the data spot thing too, because I've sort of tied those two things together, somebody, and I'm sorry that I can't remember who, uh, but someone likened the ease with which Data was able to drop Sela with a Vulcan nerve pinch mm -hmm. to, yeah. um, right. to, to vision being able to pick up Thor's hammer in the uh, Avengers Age of Ultron. Sure. And, and one of the jokes in that is, of course, Tony Stark thinks he can pick it up and Captain America thinks he can pick it up. And Captain America is almost pure enough that he actually does nudge it a tiny bit. Right. Um, there was a purity about vision that made that possible. And I wonder whether there's not something like that being said about data here. Or maybe, mm. I mean, maybe it's maybe it just goes back to the conversation that they were having where it's mm. like, unencumbered by emotion, then he doesn't have to worry about hurting Sila. He can just go ahead and drop her because that's you know, logically <laughs> what a Vulcan would do. Right. I, 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 it, the, the correlation between the two characters, we've always talked about how, how in its own odd way, Data was sort of um, TNG's answer to Spock. Uh, yeah. To have them both sitting there um, makes me wonder how much there actually, how much overlap there is between them. Well, well I, I had to wonder, you know, um I, I know that scene. I mean, that, that one scene that Data and Spock really have together by themselves. Um, and Data asks, as you examine your life, do you find you have missed your humanity? And mm -hmm. what I was really, I was less interested in Data in that scene. I was much more interested in Spock. I was trying to pay close attention to Spock's character throughout this whole episode, because I feel like we're fully into Spock, as we called him, Spock 3.0 now. Mm -hmm. And I wondered who he would be. So this isn't the guy who was so uneasy that he had to go through Kolinar. That was Spock 1.0. Um, then there was Spock 2.0, which is post-Vijer Spock. And then there was Spock 3.0, who came back from the dead. Um, <laughs> you know, and and right. what I keep thinking is that particularly after the Vijer incident and then after coming back from the dead... Spock had, in some great respect, reconciled the two parts of his personality, the, the logical Vulcan part and the emotional human part. And he did things that were illogical because he did them out of compassion and loyalty to his friends. So there's a threat of Spock in this episode acting illogically because he can see beyond pure logic alone. And that's the thing that irked 
Sarek, and that's kind of entertaining to see that play out. But he still seems a little conflicted. Um, Sarek considered it weak, but Spock is the embodiment of Idik. <laughs> that's kind of a thing to celebrate. That's kind of a great thing. And Spock can't still explain his own actions, or at least he won't explain his own actions. Why? Because he's so proud as a Vulcan. He's going on his gut. He basically admits that to Picard. So I was trying to figure this out. I don't think Spock has abandoned his human part the way that Data puts it. I, I just think he's still in denial. And that's such a weird thing because this is an older, wiser Spock who has been through death and life, <laughs> to put it mm. as others put it. So it, it's it's an interesting and strange way to see Spock brought back here. Um, and, you know, we certainly don't jump the timeline ever on this show, but whenever I say that, it means we jump the timeline. <laughs> but it's right. a very different Spock than who I think is the much more settled Spock in 2009, which is the next time we see him. It's a weird juxtaposition to have Spock and Data here because I don't know that I'm fully settled on who Spock is in this episode. There's another weird thing that happens in this episode, though, and when you mention it in trivia, that Leonard Nimoy saw this as a promotional vehicle for Star Trek VI, on which he was a producer. There's a total misdirect in here where Leonard Nimoy says, or excuse me, where Spock says, what happened at Kittimer, I got Jim Kirk into that, and I can't be responsible for the things that happened to Jim Kirk happening here. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, nothing happened to Jim Kirk. It was misdirection meant to meant to add a bit of promotion, to add a little bit of sizzle, to add a little bit of mystery, right? Mm -hmm. Because nothing mm -hmm. bad happened. I mean, yeah, he went to prison for like a day <laughs> on the Klingon <laughs> homeworld, but then they got out. Right. And, you know, they ended up saving the day. And he still goes off on this spaceship in the end. Everybody lived through that movie. Nobody even had to die and come back. <laughs> right. Heck, Sulu is captain of his own ship at that point. Things have actually gone pretty well for the crew of the Enterprise. Um, so, I mean, when you talk about, uh, you know, Spock's, you know, weird, like, you know, sort of standoffishness, I mean, it feels to me like that was a MacGuffin in a mm -hmm. way or a, or a bit of misdirection that was meant to, you know, and by the way, if you were watching Star Trek The Next Generation and excited that Spock was on, probably they already had your money for Star Trek VI. But I mean, it feels like there was a bit of writing there that was meant to promote, specifically meant to promote Star Trek VI that actually makes makes it hard for me to look at this. I'm not saying it's not canon, but when I try to figure out, wow, wow, Spock's acting weird. Yeah. And it's sort of like, well, Spock's promoting a movie in a way. <laughs> right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Which yeah. is odd yeah. because we don't normally have to take ourselves out of that in that way. But, I mean, that was really a total misdirect mm -hmm. that I think was just to prime the pump for um, the Undiscovered Country. Undiscovered Country? That was the six, right? That was six. Yeah. Been yeah. a long time, dude. Been a long time. I yeah, I think it was meant to prime the pump for the Undiscovered Country. Hey, can we talk about uh, can we talk about the Romulans for a bit? Please. All right. I officially deem the Romulans the gods of the long con. <laughs> okay. Um you remember the Vulcan ambassador who ended up being a Romulan spy? How could I forget? And she'd been bopping around the Federation for decades. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like twenty something years, I think. That is nothing compared to Pardek. Mm-hmm. 80 years he's been friends with Spock. Mm -hmm. 80 years lying his big dumb head off the whole time about unification or reunification or whatever. Yep. Um, I mean, the Romulans get slow and steady wins the race <laughs> until about, you know, like, like 100 feet from the finish line. And then they start running like, you know, 
arms flailing and their shoelaces are untied and they don't care and they're going to go <laughs> twice as fast and then they're just going to just fall flat on their faces. Yeah. Sela did this. Now, granted, she's got a little human DNA in her, but, but I mean, she, uh, you know, Sela did this when she's like, it doesn't, doesn't matter. We're so close now. Just, just keep going. Just keep going. Right. Right. And, uh, you know, that didn't go well. And then <laughs> I can't say it's just Sela, though, because the dissident Romulans, the underground Romulans who are really underground, mm-hmm. um, they see Hope and Neural's overtures and they want to break into a sprint rather oh, yeah. than, you know, being cautious at all anymore. Even though Spock and Picard are like, really, this is too good to be true. Hey, shut up. You just don't want us to be free. Right. And then they're like running towards it. Luckily, none of them got caught somehow, which is you know, pretty amazing. I, I love the long con aspect, though, of the Romulans. I mean, they're like, you think you know what's going on with the Romulan? Wait a century. Yeah. Because yeah. it could seriously be that long before you actually know what's going on with the Romulan. And that is that is probably the neatest thing about the Romulans. Well, really weird about that because, okay, Pardak know who's everybody in the underground is at this point everybody he's met them all they hang out with them oh john, did you see john, my thing did you john, see my book mm-hmm. they they went to different caves oh 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 the other caves right sure <laughs> right the ones that pardak never did say yeah Pardak, who's been you know everywhere for at least 80 years if not longer but you know these these are secret caves that that you know some 12 year old knows about but pardak no way he's heard about them mm-hmm. and, and let's see Sila's not dead she was just knocked out by uh, a vulcan mm-hmm. roof finch for a little while neral's yeah. not dead he's still yeah. around you know they, there can't be a lot of happiness about the underground uh when you I, well I, when Sila wakes up anyway i think i think you're overthinking it <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, you know who didn't overthink it was Spock. Okay, because if he's oh. been friends with Pardak for eighty years and didn't feel, boy, mm-hmm. you know, it's so weird that Pardak talks to me about this stuff all the time, and yet, really, eighty years, I have to wait eighty years for this to happen. What's he doing in the meantime? Eighty years, yeah, that's a little strange. Um, I did think, you know, to tie this into kind of the political reality, it's interesting. I'm glad that we chose to do the shows in the order that we did, where we did the entire original series cast and did Star Trek VI. So we have that background of what Spock did and what happened at Kittimer before we got to this episode. I think it plays very nicely like that. But I get to reminisce now and say, okay, this episode, like the Undiscovered Country is happening in 1991. And we know that the plot of Star Trek VI was about the coming together of the Klingons and the Federation. And this is told in that spirit of Glasnost, Perestroika. And they're very open saying that uh, the Chernobyl reactor accident was the thing that kicked off the, the story ideas for what happened in Star Trek VI. So th- this, again, is sort of uh, another way into that story, what happens to global politics when conditions change. So I was just imagining, you know, any of this story happening with a Western ambassador entering, say, the Soviet Union, trying to connect with an underground movement and thinking, wow, could they really last that long without getting caught? Um, And cowboy diplomacy, I'm glad that they use that term because clearly we know who they're talking about because they tell us Kirk. Kirk is who they're talking about when they say cowboy (laughs) diplomacy. But it does go back into this interesting question about do the ends justify the means? And, uh, And I like the idea that we are hitting... Well, you know, it's bonk bonk on the head that we're hitting. Closed minds have kept us apart for centuries. That is a, a recurring theme there. Picard simply needs to imagine the world that Spock does, in which enemies can get along. 
And Kirk, likewise, because if you were watching this in November of 1991, about a month later, you'd see the same challenge issued to Kirk in December of 1991, that he was so inflexible. He had grown so inflexible with his age, and it took Spock to bring him around. Um, Interesting contrast there that they would both be in the same boat because Picard is the guy who said and continues to say that he'll try diplomacy, then he'll try it again, and then he'll keep trying. Um, and, and it's nice to see him say that to Pardak. These people are no one's enemy, Senator. Ironically, of course, that he's saying about the people around him, but not getting that Pardak is actually the enemy in this case. But we'll, we'll, forgive, we'll forgive him that oversight in that moment. It seems worth noting. In two episodes called Unification, no one was in fact unified. I used to joke about dreading this part of this show. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not joking. Oh, no. Okay, okay. <laughs> time now to discuss, uh, time now to answer a bunch of questions about the episodes uh, Unification and Unification 2. Messages, morals, and meanings, whether the whole thing holds up, and, and we have to start there, uh, John. Uh, does or do these episodes hold up as far as you're concerned? I'm going to get into a conversation that is probably going to be very unpopular. Um, <laughs> and... <laughs> And I don't mean to do that. I don't mean to be an instigator or a provocateur in that respect. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. I have to be very honest here. So now, last week, wait a we minute. Did... You're not being a you're not being a saboteur, are you? Oh, uh, you mean and sabotaging our episode? Oh yes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No. Go. I'm sorry. Um, last week we did the game. And I talked about mm-hmm. how leading up to that episode, we got a lot of emails, well, the ones that didn't say that game, uh, <laughs> you know the game I'm talking about. You can play on your smartphone. I do. I do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, trap. Yeah. Right, right. So the, the emails and messages and tweets that didn't mention that, they all said like, mm-hmm. oh, here's a terrible episode. Here's an awful yeah. episode that has Wesley in it. Uh, hold your nose when you review that one. And you and I found something to really like about that. We found a lot of things to like about that episode. And we both said that that one held up. Now here we are with Unification 1 and Unification 2, and the exact opposite has happened. People have written in saying, oh, this is epic. This is fantastic. I can't wait to hear what you have to say about this one. I'm sorry Mm -hmm. to disappoint you if you don't like what I have to say about this one. Here's the thing. It's great to see Spock again. Sure. It's mm, cool to see Spock. Always. And it's cool to see that bridge being built between the original series and the next generation. This is before entertainment companies did universe building, where they would just say, we're telling these massive stories on epic scales. It may, may take a century of story time to tell. That's cool. Mm-hmm. That was mind-blowing in 1991 to see Spock show up 
on on next generation. And even now, it drives home the idea that all of this exists in the same universe. I feel like you and I are very removed from the original series in some respect, because we are so deeply studying next generation. We don't get to sort of go back and watch the, the original series for pleasure, even. So they feel like different worlds. This helps to bridge mm-hmm. that in, in a great way. The idea of the cliffhanger is very exciting. Oh, oh, there's Spock. Oh, I got to wait for next week. All right, fine. Mm-hmm. Um, this is also a great idea for an episode, but ultimately it loses steam as a production. Um, there's a real attempt here to stretch out a story that didn't need to be two episodes. There are things that drive mm-hmm. me nuts. I hate that Neral is immediately revealed as a bad guy. Just his very yeah. presence on screen, and you can see right through him, and you want Spock to be smarter than you. You know? <laughs> um, yeah. I hate that Sela is totally wasted. She's got a great moment. I agree with you there. But I hate that Sela is totally wasted in this episode. I hate that giant 80s computer that the Romulans have. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and... <laughs> And I hate the fact that Romulus isn't really alien at all. I I respect Mm. that this is done on a 1991 TV budget. But again, this needs to feel epic. It needs to feel seriously huge. Part one, I feel like, is stronger than part two. Because it builds drama and tension nicely. And my God, again, that scene with Sarek is so heartbreaking. That could have been its own episode. You know, yes. um, it, but if you're going to tell that story, just tell that story, then end it cleanly, then go do something with Spock. Um, Ooh, I don't think you tell that story without telling the Spock part. I think there are only two things I'm going to disagree with you on. OK, first right. of all, I think I think if you're going to do the Sarek story, because we've already done the Sarek story once. So the mm-hmm. only reason to do the Sarek story again, it seems to me, is to do the father and son thing, either the father and son reunion or the, you know, father and son, um, schism or, you know, yep. separation or whatever you want to call that. Right. I, I think just revisiting it for the sake of revisiting, it would be bad. Uh, the one thing I will, the one thing that I'll disagree with, with, with all the rest of the stuff that you said, mm-hmm. I'm fine that the Romulans aren't that alien. When we recently, as we record this, did our, you know, 10 essential episodes of TOS. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons that I chose, um, one of the reasons I chose Balance of Terror is because we saw that the captain of a Romulan ship and the captain of a Federation ship were only separated by which side of the border they were born on. And so when we're walking around Romulus and it's like, oh, you can order soup here just mm-hmm. like you can on, on my planet. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, these people are nice and these people are curious and these people are no one's enemy. I like the fact that it wasn't so terribly alien. I like the fact that, you know, once we actually drop that whole idea – of enemy, and then we look at people. And and Picard, you know, can't walk away hitting the Romulans anymore. He might not like the power structure. He might not like the organization. He might not like the fact that they'll trick him any chance they can, at least the people who are in power. But the people he's hanging around with are people that he wouldn't hang around with. And I really, I, that part I do like. Hmm. Um, that said, everything else that you have ever said about the Romulans, I'm on your side. Um <laughs> The only next-gen episode I can think of where the Romulans worked was the one with the defector. And, of course, I can't remember the name of it. But, you know, he was the guy who was duped into leaving the Romulan Empire and warning the Federation of a plot that ended up not actually existing, right? Oh, you mean the defector? 
Was it called the defector, really? And I just said, that, was it really? Oh, dude, that is so embarrassing. Although points to me for accidentally hitting on the title, but okay. Um, the second best one with the Romulans, I think, was the one where Riker had a kid um, and they were being held by the Romulans, except those Romulans ended up being imaginary. Mm-hmm. They have gone from being menacing and formidable and balance of terror to being cartoon, mustache twirling, capital B bad guys. Yeah, right. And... You know, the, the good ones are just as bad because they're dumb. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the ones underground who are like, oh, no, we can totally trust Neral, even though he's risen really quickly up in the power structure, a power structure that rewards ruthlessness. But I'm sure this one's OK. Um, I really do hope that there's redemption for the Romulans as foils somewhere along the way, because right now they're a wasted race. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're just they're they're useless I mean, and and I thought you were being too hard on them in every episode (laughs) until we got to this one. When they leave them unguarded in an office full of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then come back in and like, there's no way they could have gotten out of here. Oh, wait, we're Romulans in Mm -hmm. TNG. So I guess there are actually plenty of ways they couldn't get on here. There are great pieces in this episode. Uh, The part with Sarek is amazing. Uh, The part at the surplus depot is a lot of fun. The part dealing with Gowron, even though Gowron's not on screen, is fantastic. Steven Root's Klingon captain is amazing. Mm -hmm. And yes, it is great to see Spock. But all of these pieces do not make one cohesive or at least enjoyable story as far as I'm concerned. And we're going to get hate mail. You're going to get it. I'm going to get it. And I just, just stop it. Just stop it right now. Because here's the thing. We love Spock. We love Nimoy. Yeah. We love Sarek. We love Mark Leonard. I got a thing for Perrin. Okay. Yeah, I will not deny you that. But, no, but here's yeah, the thing. Not, not hey, wait, wait, wait. wait yeah, yeah. Really quickly. We love Star Trek. Yeah. We love Star Trek. Yeah. And if you love this episode, God bless you, yeah. because it is only your love of Star Trek that makes this episode work, as far as I'm concerned. You have to love Star Trek so much. I mean, you, you have to not be watching it critically, I feel like. And I don't mean to be hard on it, because I wanted, I, I remember this as being like one of those episodes. Like, everybody who wrote in, I remember this like being, you know, yeah. a turning point somehow. And it turns out the turning point was seeing Spock on TV again. Yep. And, and I just... It it saddens me that I can't enjoy this episode more, even though I can enjoy the heck out of so many different parts of it, including seeing Nimoy on screen. Here's what it comes down to. This Mm -hmm. episode is full of great characters. It's full of great actors. It's full of moments that help to build the mythology of Star Trek. And that's cool. It is a very poorly produced piece of Star Trek. Everything from design and execution to scripting to pacing it is poorly produced star trek it doesn't mean they didn't try <laughs> you know um doesn't mean there's not a lot of really good stuff in it it's yeah just the whole thing isn't good right sadly right Ugh. and, and, and it yeah. kind of pains me to say that not because i i'm not strong in my conviction here, but um, yeah, I, I wanted it to be great. I wanted to be blown yes. away again by this. But here's the thing. Yeah. We have come across episodes that are not very well-produced episodes of Star Trek that still have things to say. So it, given that it has great characters, given that it has great actors, given that it has great moments that we can enjoy, are there also messages that are worth looking at. I mean, we we had a nice long chat about this episode. So what do you got? 
I mean, there are pronouncements about fathers and sons, which mm-hmm. I think are, are interesting. Mm-hmm. I love, actually, that Picard's like, well, number one, sometimes fathers and sons. And Riker's like, hold it right there, old man. I'm in the choir. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to preach to me. Yep. I mean, yep. it seems like there's actually nobody with a healthy... You've talked about the orphan thing before. Yeah. Is there yeah. anybody who actually has a healthy father-son relationship? Oh, no, no. Yeah. Which is interesting. I mean, we're mm-hmm. given to understand that Picard's, well, Picard's family life certainly was not um, the easiest thing in the world for him. Yeah. I appreciate Spock's faith and the faith of the dissident Romulans that things can get better, but I'm not sure that that's a message as much as it's, you know, characters acting with a certain moral compass. Mm-hmm. I mean, because the, I mean, the message that you take is, hey, just because somebody says they're on your side doesn't mean they are. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. so I mean, it's like, I don't know. I mean, I, there's some interesting character stuff, as we say. I mean, there's the whole father-son thing. That otherwise, I, I'm I had a hard time picking messages out. What about you? No, well, I, I think there are good messages here, uh, both on that personal level, but also on that that kind of big myth-building political level, kind of the macro level here. So there's an interesting idea that uh, we can ask ourselves about Spock. Um, what are the ethics of what he's doing? You know, this cowboy diplomacy, sure, you can throw around a term like that. The needs of the many are outweighing the needs of the few here or the one. But is it reckless? He could drag them all into war, and he is clearly blinded by his own desire to see unification, even though the people around him are not necessarily interested in unification, Um, save for, you know, that small band of young hippies who have been learning the Vulcan language since they were little. So, you know, Spock's heart may be in the right place, but there is maybe an ethical problem with how he is going about this. Um, On the bigger level, uh, that line, closed minds have kept these worlds apart for centuries. We can either Mm. choose to live with that enmity or we can seek a way to change it. I choose the latter. Boom. Done. There's Spock telling you at least one of the messages of this story um in any other context that that's just so much more star trek myth building but we have to take a line like that seriously we have to let it resonate with how we look at the world now and you can take a line like that and you can decide okay maybe that applies to personal relationships family relationships uh where there is strife, anger, uh, distrust, whatever the case may be. But clearly that applies to the way we look at diplomacy and we look at the big picture of the world around us. Is that not undercut by the fact that everybody ended up double-crossing him? In Spock's case, maybe it does. But is Spock cut from the same cloth as Picard, where Picard would say, you know what, I tried and that attempt failed, but we have to try it again from another direction that's what the end of the episode is about when spock says look i i realize what my mission is i have to stay here and i have to get to the people if it failed Mm. for him to start basically at the top of the chain oh i'm going to go to the senator i'll go to a proconsul we'll go from there boom done no it's not done i will have to work on the people i have to work on changing their hearts that's the only way that this can happen um this is a theme in here as well, that diplomacy is not something that happens overnight. And it's not always from that higher up level. It's not always from the bird's eye view. You have to change minds. You have to change hearts. And you have to do it over time. I, I like the poetry of that scene with them standing at, you know, soup station two, 
when the, the flower is put on the table, one can begin to reshape the landscape with a single flower. It reminded me of the end of Mirror Mirror. See also that line. Spock says, one man cannot summon the future. And then Kirk says, but one man can change the present. And that was a great lesson to learn from that episode. And that's the same lesson that Spock here, non-mirror Spock, has to enact on Romulus if he wants his mission to be a success. And if he does, you know, clearly he's chosen to do that. He's chosen to stay behind and do that. But he has to take his own lesson to heart here which is to say that, you know, I can't keep a closed mind. I can't let the idea that there was a failure, or at least a setback, that maybe reinforces the idea that we can't trust these Romulans, that the unification won't happen. No, I've got to take a different tactic. And if I can't summon the future, I will try to change the present with the people who are open to it. So I think that's a great lesson there. It works personally, but like I said before, it also works on a much bigger level if we're into the idea of Star Trek making grand statements about politics, making grand statements about its own universe. So for all those reasons, I love exploring the messages and morals of this episode. I'm just not crazy about the episode. So forgive me, <laughs> those of you who are madly <laughs> typing on your keyboards right now. <laughs> That's right, because I already said don't send it to me. So you're right. You're getting the Well, you always get the I do. And again, as always, you know, I'm incredibly grateful. Hey, Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer Rod Roddenberry. You can find out more about all the stuff Roddenberry is doing. That's entertainment, that's foundation things. If it's got Roddenberry attached, you can find out about it at Roddenberry.com. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, be sure to check out Trek FM. That is Trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit TrekMovie.com. Next week, a matter of time. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at Warp11.com. And from the album Messages by Key Theory. Free to download at kitheory.com. Congratulations to John and Ken for hitting episode 200 of Mission Log. Can you name them all? Because you know for a fact, Ken cannot. And transmission. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.